times of illness when we probably cry out to the Lord the most, isn't it? Sing, sing a song like that, and I need thee every hour, and you lay in there with the fever or, you know, whatever the ailment might be in those times of pain and suffering, and we are crying out every minute, and we need him every hour, that's for sure. Every moment of the day, we need the Lord Jesus. And uh, we see that here in the book of Mark. Let's continue our journey through the book of Mark. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Actually, it's chapter 3. Chapter 3. And just a reminder of the setting. Jesus has come, and he is turning the world upside down. He's healing the lame. He's touching lepers, making them whole and clean. He's making the blind to see and the deaf to hear, and he's casting out demons and forgiving sins even of those who put their trust in him. He's preaching the gospel to the poor, and he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners of all people. He's shattering the self-righteous religious beliefs of the day, and he's just dealt with some Issues of fasting for religious purposes and the Sabbath day. You know, the disciples of John and the Pharisees challenged him. They challenged him, why do you not fast and your disciples not fast? And his answers are just amazing. With great, with great directness and clarity, he helps them to see that fasting isn't just about religion and ritual. It's about a hunger for God and, and God's right here. God is right here. And then he dealt with the issue of the Sabbath, that special day of of rest set aside to enjoy fellowship with God. And it was the practice of the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they'd corrupted the Sabbath and laid all kinds of burdens on people and turned this beautiful blessing of the Sabbath into a burden for the people. And he taught them that it was right and good, right to do good on the Sabbath. And he demonstrated his power by healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. And this enraged the Pharisees. They were angry with him, furious with him, to the point where they plotted with the political rulers of the day, the Herodians, to kill him. And so that's where we pick up now in chapter 3, verse 7. Right after the Pharisees had begun their plotting with the Herodians to kill Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. And we'll read verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. That's my unclean spirit voice. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so we just saw Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. We'll pause here, and then we're going to get into the next paragraph of the text. We just saw Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, the synagogue smackdown, so to speak. And he knows that they want to kill him, and so he withdraws. Now's not the time 
to press this any further, he, he backs away. He withdraws with his disciples to the sea to get away from this immediate danger of the religious leaders. He needs to create some space here between the disciples and these dangerous murderers who are plotting to kill him. And now he's already called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew, Philip, and Nathaniel as his disciples. Five more will be named with these as apostles in the next paragraph, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. And at this point in his ministry, Jesus, he's getting a lot of followers and likes, even with no social media marketing campaign. <laughs> he's got it going on here. This is a massive, massive crowd. We're talking tens of thousands of people here. And, and why not? He's healing every sick person's diseases and casting out demons. Every demon that he encounters is cast out. And he's not just healing the common cold here. I mean, the word for diseases here is sometimes translated plagues or scourges. These were painful, agonizing, physical ailments and illnesses. And boy, wouldn't it be great, right? I mean, a lot of us have suffered this last couple of weeks with illnesses or have suffered in our lives with, with terrible illnesses. And wouldn't it be great? Jesus walks through the door and you can just take a look at him and, and you're healed. Or by his word alone, you're healed instantly. Or you just touch the hem of his garment and you're healed. How amazing would that be? And in this day, we've seen the blind have been seeing, the lame walk and the deaf hear. No, no one had ever seen anything like this. And the word was spreading like wildfire. And this is also a time in history where there's no real medical care. There's no real medical care. Remember in Luke chapter 5, here's a quote from Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, instantly, he's completely and fully healed. No further treatments necessary. No, no comeback appointments are needed here. He's immediately healed. It says, and immediately the leprosy left him. He was fully restored and healed. And you remember the story of the woman who had the issue of blood for nearly her whole life and had spent all her money on all the doctors. And it only made her worse. And she knew if she could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment that she'd be healed. And so she fought through the crowd. You remember the story? And she touched him, right? She touched the hem of his garment. He's, he's like, who touched me? Right? He stopped everything, and the disciples were like, are you crazy, Jesus? Everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? And immediately she was healed because of her faith in Jesus. Amazing what he is doing. Now Mark is careful to note here from just how far people were coming to see Jesus. I mean, they were coming from all over the place. <coughs> from all over the place. As far north as Tyre and Sidon, so if you look at your map in the back of your Bible, this is a good opportunity to flip back there to your map. A lot of you guys have maps back there. When I was a kid, man, I just look at those maps all day long because it's probably the only color thing in my Bible. <laughs> and I look at those maps, and man, these, these people are coming from all over the place, Tyre and Sidon, very far north, not even in Palestine. 
So they're coming from very far north, the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And east, beyond the Jordan River, so past the Jordan River, east to the to Euphrates River, and even past, they're coming from past the Jordan River on the east. <coughs> as far south as Idu, Idu, why can't I say that this morning? Idumea, which stretches to the southern point of the Dead Sea even. So this is a large geographical territory that these people are coming from. Even without the internet, word got around about Jesus, and it got around far and fast. People were coming from all over the place. Now, this wasn't easy travel either, right? They would either be walking or riding on a camel or a donkey or some kind of animal. But you can just imagine how these people felt, right? Maybe they're way up there in Tyre or in Sidon, and someone says, hey, I see that uh, you know, your son has been sick. I've heard that there's this man, Jesus, you need to go see him. He can heal your son. Tell me all about that. And they tell the stories of how Jesus healed. And they, I'm going immediately. And they'd probably pack up everything they could get their hands on, and they'd go down there to find Jesus with the hope, the shred of hope in their heart that they would find him and that he would heal their son or their daughter or themselves. And so they were coming from everywhere, tens upon thousands of people, to the point where he thought he might be crushed by the crowd. The word in the Greek is the word for crushed. So you can imagine, right, all these people crushing in on him. And so notice that Jesus thinks ahead and he's prepared for these difficult situations. He even asked the disciples to have a boat ready just in case they all need an escape from the crowds. It's like, hey, make sure the boat is ready right there in the water because these crowds are, they're just so many people, they're crazy. We might need a, a quick escape here so that we're not crushed by them. And then we also see, not only is he healing the sick of all of their ailments, no matter what the ailment is, he's also casting out demons. Now, from all the stories that we read here in the, the New Testament Gospels, there are a whole lot of demons around inside of people. There's a lot of these demons in people. There are a lot of people possessed with demons in this time. And it makes me wonder, how many people are in our culture, in our own communities, possessed with demons right now? This is real stuff. This isn't just movie stuff. There's so many accounts of Jesus casting out demons. And so Jesus is casting out demons almost everywhere he goes. There's another account in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. It says he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And so you see, every demon, as he, he encounters these demon-possessed people, the demons even declare, you are the Son of God. They know who he is. They say, you are the Son of God, or you are the Holy One of God. 
They understand that Jesus shares in the very nature of God, that Jesus is God, and the, the demons declare it with loud voices. They're not ashamed of that. They're not afraid to say it. They're screaming it out, that Jesus is the Son of God or the Holy One of God. Now, it's interesting that in the whole book of Mark, the disciples never say that. Isn't that interesting? The disciples never say in the book of Mark that Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is the Holy One of God. Only the demons and the Roman soldier in chapter 15. I thought that was very interesting. So the demons know exactly who they are. And James chapter 1 tell us, hey, the, G the demons believe and they shudder. So it's not a, just an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is that saves you. Because the demons know exactly who Jesus is. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God. And they're not saved. No, you've got to trust in him. You've got to trust in him for your salvation. You've got to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got to believe and have faith in him for your salvation. That he's paid the price for your sins. And that you can be saved by his grace through your faith in him. That's what brings salvation. Even the demons know who he is. Look, even the demons bow down before him and scream that he's the son of God. They know that truth and they're terrified by it. Now, interesting, in verse 12, Jesus tells the demons, back in Mark chapter 3, <clears throat> he tells the demons not to make him known. Now, why would he tell them that? You'd think, hey, maybe he needs all the help he can get, you know, getting the word out that he's the son of God so that people will believe in him and trust in him. But he's not interested in the demons' propaganda. He doesn't want them on his marketing team. <laughs> Jesus wants no affiliation with the demons at all. <clears throat> he doesn't want anyone to think the demons were his allies. He's already got enough trouble with that already. We're going to see that later in the chapter. The Pharisees even claim that he casts out demons by the head of the, the demons. It's totally messed up. And so he's, he's not wanting these demons to make him known at all. It's not right for demons to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. And he wants no part of that. He wants his own believers and followers to make this claim, not the demons. He wants no association or validation from the demons at all. And so he tells them, be quiet, hush. Now Jesus is doing all of these things. And isn't this the same Jesus that we love and worship today and believe in today? This is the same Jesus. So often when our, when our faith is weak and we, you know, we cry out to God and we wonder, you know, is he listening? Does he care? Does he hear me? This is the Jesus that we, that we love and worship. The Jesus who heals the sick, who causes the lame to walk and the blind to see, who casts out the demons in people's lives. It's the same Jesus. And he loves us as much today as he ever loved these people. And so we can trust him. He is faithful and he cares. He has power over the physical world. He can heal the sick and, 
and cause even the wind and the waves of the sea to be still at his command. He has power over the spiritual world. He can cast out demons and stop their mouths. And he has power in our world today and in our lives today. And we can trust him. You can trust him with your life. And you can trust him with your soul. We can find rest and peace in him that we sang about in those hymns. And so that's the first part of this chapter. This chapter is, in many ways, this chapter is like an interlude. We had all this activity, and now we got this pause, this, this kind of pause and interlude, kind of a recap of what's been happening. And then we're going to see here in, in verses three, 13 through 19, he chooses his 12 apostles. And so let's look at chapter 3, verse 13. <coughs> He's choosing his 12 apostles. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So you can imagine now there's this huge throng and crowd, tens and tens upon thousands of people. And so he withdraws further up into the mountain, and he's just calling a very small group at this time, his disciples. And he's going to cut that down even to an, to an even smaller group. He's choosing his apostles Verse 14, he appointed 12. So out of the tens upon thousands of people, he picks 12. Whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, and here they are by name, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagerys, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it also gives this account, we see that Jesus prayed all night to God before calling the twelve. So this wasn't done lightly. He prayed all night long. And we don't know exactly what he prayed, but you can speculate. You know, he knew who the 12 were going to be, and so he's probably praying for them, would be my guess. But he's praying all night long. <clears throat> and amazing how Jesus models prayer for us. And Jesus spent time praying. He spent time going to lonely places where he could actually be alone and have quiet and pray. That is so important for us in our own lives. We often think, oh, you know, we're just so busy, and time doesn't permit that. And as the busyness of life increases, isn't our, our time in prayer and time in God's word, isn't that like one of the first things that goes, sadly? It's like, oh, I'll sacrifice that 15 minutes or that 10 minutes, and I'm just too busy. I woke up too late, or et cetera. We're just too busy, but, you know, Martin Luther said one, <laughs> at one point, the great reformer, you know, I'm too busy not to pray. <laughs> You know, I've got too many pressing things. If I don't spend time in prayer, I'm never going to get them done. And, and that's the kind of attitude we need to have about prayer. We're too busy not to pray. We've got to carve out that time. Jesus spent all night in prayer before he called his apostles. And so let us follow that model of Jesus and spend much more time in prayer with the Father. Now notice this group. <clears throat> I love the way Mark list the, the apostles, too, because he adds their nicknames. The other uh, gospels don't give all the nicknames. 
Uh, but Mark lists the nicknames, and I love that about Mark. And if you look down at this list of names, too, this is a real motley group, you know. This isn't, um, this isn't some impressive list of names here. I just love this. You know, look at, look at who these people are. You know, if you go back in Mark, you can see, you know, they were fishermen. Fishermen? <laughs> Seriously? This is the king of kings, the lord of lords, and he's appointing his, his guys, right? His 12. And you'd think, oh, these are going to be like, you know, prestigious, high-ranking leaders, you know. And look who he picks. Fishermen, tax collectors. Not one of these people are a known theologian or a scholar or religious leader. You don't see Gamaliel's name in the list or you know, anything like that. There's nothing important about any of these guys. <clears throat> these are just ordinary guys. A real motley group. And there's really nothing notable about them. You know, Acts chapter 14, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. So Peter and John are preaching. You know, the boldness of the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And they perceived that they were what? Uneducated common men. That's what they were. <laughs> Uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's the only notable thing about these guys is they had been with Jesus. They are not known for their education, for their talents, yet their ministry was so powerful that in Acts chapter 17, there be, they were, they were, it was said of them that they had turned the world upside down. Wow, that's amazing. <clears throat> and notice here, the, the, you can see in, in Mark the camaraderie of the group, you know, because they all had nicknames, and I'm, I'm thinking Jesus gave them the nicknames, because it says here, you know, he gave the names uh, Boner, Bo, Boanerges, you know, the sons of thunder. So Jesus is giving them nicknames. So this is kind of fun in a way. I like to read, read it that way. And he's giving them these nicknames. And, you know, they're all kind of like brothers in a way, too. If you, you read through the Gospels, you see how they would pick at each other, and they'd get angry with each other, because, you know, these two thought they were greater than these, and they'd get all mad at each other and be fighting and bickering with each other. These guys were a mess. I mean, there was nothing organized or anything great about these guys. They're just ordinary people with emotions, and, you know, they're not super people, super holy people or anything like that. <clears throat> Jesus gives them nicknames, and it shows really the, the camaraderie and, and really his intimacy with them. And then you look, he picks 12. Why did he pick 12? I mean, that's a big number. You know, a lot of times you see a smaller list or maybe some even a larger list, but why 12? Well, it, it, 12 is a very important number. In the context of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God, this act of appointing 12 would be understood as a symbolic reconstruction of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 is very intentional and very important. And he even says in Luke 22:28 28, that you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So these were the new leaders of the new Israel. 
here they are in all their glory. <laughs> and Matthias would take the place of Judas Iscariot since he betrayed Jesus. And so these are the new leaders of the new Israel. <clears throat> they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he chose whom he desired. He chose them. They didn't choose him. No, he chose them. And then he trained them. And he sent them out to preach. We see that here. And we're reminded of this too in 1 Corinthians 1 about how God, God doesn't use the, the strength of men to accomplish his purposes does he? Never. 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us of this. 1 Corinthians 1 26, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why he does it right there. So that no one can show up to the table and say, yeah, I know God. God needs my help, so he picked me. I got some real skills and talents I can bring to the table here and help God out because he kind of needs some help. No, there is no room for boasting anywhere in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the point. <clears throat> and this is the Apostle Paul writing. He continues, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. So the next time you think, well, man, I'm just not good enough. I can't share the gospel. I can't do this or that for God. I can't do this great big thing for God. I'm just not strong enough. I don't have enough talents or skills or resources or whatever. Good, that's perfect. You're exactly where he wants you. Then he can use you and then you will glory in him and not your own strength. God isn't interested in using the wise and the clever. It's not about the people. It's about the power of God working in them. They learned, these apostles, and then they were sent. They left everything to follow Jesus. <clears throat> and now he names these 12 of his, as his apostles. These are sent ones. That's what the word in the Greek means. They are sent ones. These are the original sent ones by Jesus himself. And he gives them authority to cast out demons. And the other gospels add to heal the sick. 
And so where they, wherever they went to preach, they had special supernatural powers. They were given to them to bear witness to the truth of their message. Because they would go and they would preach the gospel. And people would probably be like, eh, whatever. And then they'd heal the sick. Like, whoa, I'm paying attention now. Cast out a demon. Oh, you got my attention now. They were given these specific men, were giving these powers to bear witness of the power of God in them as they preached the message. And this power came from Jesus himself. Now, beware of people that you see today who say they have some of these same powers. You'll turn on the TV and you'll see all kinds of people that claim they can cast out a demon. You'll flip the channel. Oh, you'll, you know, if, I'll, if you'll just send me this money, then I'll put, your, you know, I'll put this water on this cloth and I'll pray on that and then I'll send it to you and you'll be healed. All these kinds of gimmicks and things. Just be careful of that. Most of that's false. When people claim they have these powers today, typically they have a lot of bad theology that goes along with it, and they do it for money. You can always sniff it out real quickly with that. There's typically bad theology, and they're doing it for money. It's, it's very disturbing. So beware of them and check their doctrine carefully. Now, there are four lists of the apostles' names, and we'll just wrap up with, with going through their names and their nicknames. I think it's interesting and very important. There are four lists of the apostles, and they're given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. And in each of these accounts, the names are generally given in the same order, and they're grouped in the same way. The names aren't always listed exactly the same, but they're in groups, and those groups are typically in the same order. They're all in the same order. Group one, two, and three always have the same four names, and Peter is always listed first. Peter was their leader. <coughs> group two starts with Philip, and group three usually starts with James, the son of Alphaeus. And as you go through the list, there's a decreasing knowledge of what we know about the men until you get to Judas Iscariot. He is always last. Judas is always last with the comment that he is the one who betrayed Jesus. And all were given the same power, given the same authority, and the same message to preach. And let's consider what we know of each of them. First, there's Simon Peter. He's the rock. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His name was Simon, but Jesus gave him the name Peter, Petros, which means rock. He would be the foundation pillar of the church. Peter was the closest to Jesus and the dominant preacher among all the apostles. And you, you can read the Gospels and really see the heart of Peter, you know. He's, he's the one who walk, walks on the water and sinks. You know, he's the first one to just run, run headlong into things. He's, he's so emotional about almost everything. Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. And he denies him three times. And then he weeps and weeps, you know. He just has such a heart for Jesus. He loves Jesus so much, but you know, sometimes his faith is weak and can really identify with Peter. And he becomes the most dominant preacher among the apostles uh, in the book of Acts. So Peter's always listed first. He is the leader. Then we have James and John, the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. 
the sons of Zebedee. Now, we don't know anything about Zebedee, their father, but he must have been in some way important because they mention him regularly, all the Gospels, mention that they are the sons of Zebedee. <clears throat> now, these two were real hotheads. That's why they get the name Sons of Thunder. Now, I don't know that why Jesus gave them that nickname, if that was the nickname he just wanted to remind them of how to you know, not be. <laughs> Maybe that was his reminder of them, you guys, you need to tone it down some. I mean, these guys were amazing. In Luke chapter 9, we have this account. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So here's James and John. like, Jesus, they don't like you there. Let's just call down fire from heaven. We'll take these guys out right now. We'll just deal with them right now. And Jesus is like, no, don't do that. We're not going to kill them just because they don't like us. I mean, they were ready to call fire down from heaven. Like you get the, the image of Elijah, right, <clears throat> in the altar. And the fire comes down and consumes everything. That's what James and John were suggesting here. So these are the sons of thunder. They're real hotheads. The sons of Zebedee. And these were the ones, too, that, you know, said, hey, we want to be at your right hand and your left and, you know, grant us that and all that drama. Um, amazing group. So that's James and John. And then you have Philip and Andrew. Philip was an active evangelist. You can see his ministry spoken of in the book of Acts. Andrew was Peter's brother, and that's about all we know of him. Uh, there's not a whole lot written of Andrew. <clears throat> Bartholomew, we don't see uh, him mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And then Matthew is next. He's the tax collector. He's hated and despised by everyone. Can you imagine the, you know, the scene here? It's like, oh, yeah, we're in with Jesus. What, what's he doing? He's talking to that tax collector. He inviting him to go with us? Are you kidding me? What's that guy doing here? <laughs> the tax collector. Now we got to be nice to him too. I mean, you can just imagine. Oh man, we hate that guy. He took extra money from me last time. I never got over that. You can imagine all that would have played out. Hated and despised by everyone, the tax collector. Then there's Thomas the twin. He's the restored doubter. He's the doubting Thomas. <clears throat> then James, the son of Alphaeus, we don't really know anything about him. His mother Mary followed Jesus. James the Less is his nickname. Wouldn't you love to be known as that? <laughs> James the Less? Seriously? He's not as great as that other James, you know, the son of thunder up there. The son of thunder is James the Less. I mean, these are the real nicknames. I'm not making this up. Hey, get James. No, no, the Less. The less. Get him. Bring him. <laughs> yeah. James the less. That was his nickname. He was less than the other James. Then there's Thaddeus. Now this is the only name that's not the same in all the New Testament lists of the twelve. Luke 16, oh, Luke 6, 16 and Acts call him Judas the son of James. <coughs> John 14, 22 calls him Judas, not Iscariot. 
MacArthur, uh, in his uh, commentaries, mentions that, that his nickname Thaddeus means mama's boy. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Don't you just love the nicknames these guys have? So like in the Greek, you know, there's Labaius and then Thaddeus, and it really translates to son of the mother's heart, which really is kind of mama's boy. This is the mama's boy, Judas. Then there's Simon the Cananean, which is also uh, known as Simon the Zealot. He was very zealous. He was a hot-headed political revolutionary. He was not a native of Cana. The word is derived from the Aramaic that means to be zealous and was used for uh, those who were zealous for the law. So we have Simon the Zealot. And then we have Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. His name is always listed last. Probably the most sad human being that ever lived. Mark 14, 21 says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. During Jesus' public ministry, he managed the treasury of the company, <coughs> and he was known to steal money from the treasury. So he didn't have just one one bad decision. He was kind of regularly making bad decisions. And as a betrayer, Judas contracted to turn Jesus over to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. And he accomplished his act of betrayal by singling out Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed by a kiss. And so those are the 12. Now all were killed for the sake of the gospel. Only John was spared and exiled to the island of Patmos. The rest were killed. According to church tradition, that's really all we know. We don't have Bible accounts of these, how these men died. But according to church tradition, Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same way as the Lord. Andrew was crucified but tied instead of nailed to a cross to prolong his suffering. James, the brother of John, was executed by Herod Agrippa. This is the only account we re that's recorded in Scripture. Philip was said to have been stoned to death in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, after many came to Christ through his preaching. Some say that Bartholomew was thrown into the sea. Others say he was crucified. We don't know for sure. Matthew may have been burned at the stake. Thomas reached India, where some say he was killed with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. Simon the Zealot was sawn in half after, after his preaching in North Africa. Thaddeus was clubbed to death in modern-day Turkey. The gospel went out to the whole world through their faithfulness. And we stand in their legacy today by the grace of God. These men turned the world upside down. Common, ordinary men. And a very interesting group, to say the least. No one would have ever predicted this group of nobodies would change the world. And they are the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. <clears throat> they were the stupid, proud, faithless, and powerless that God empowered to take his gospel message to the ends of the earth. And we're just like them. God can use us greatly if we just have a little faith and we'll humble ourselves. 
he sent them out to preach, and he also sends us out to tell others the gospel message and make disciples. We have a similar calling, don't we? So let's be faithful as they were faithful to tell others about the salvation that we have by grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All who trust in him can be saved from their sins and have eternal life. And let's not be ashamed of that good news. And let's take the gospel to the world. Let's be faithful to proclaim it in our families, first and foremost, <laughs> in our communities, our workplaces, and to the ends of the earth for the glory of God the Father.